The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 10 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC10. This is Secret Church 10, episode 4. So what happens when he does? When he changes our heart? Well, that leads to third. God Reveals our need, changes our heart, he enables our belief. Now, all right, salvation, doctrine of conversion. So this is the point. Now, new birth, mysterious. It's spiritual. But it triggers something practical. And now we're getting the heart of the question. We started with in Acts 16. What must I do to be saved? God opens your eyes, changes your heart, and you cry out, how can I be saved? And, and the answer to that question is what we're going to look at. You look at the message the answer to that question in the New Testament, what you'll see at the very end of this passage in Acts chapter 20, you see these words, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the two main words you'll see in the New Testament when it comes to how, what must I do to be saved? Repent and believe, repentance and faith. And what we're about to see is that this is definitively how Scripture teaches we are to be saved. Yet we are prone to describe salvation in so many other ways. Tozer, once lamented, all announced and most, mostly undetected, there has come in modern times a new cross into popular evangelical circles. It's like the old cross, but different. The likenesses are superficial. The differences are fundamental. This new evangelism employs the same language as the old, but its content is not the same, and its emphasis is not as before. The cross in this new evangelism does not slay the sinner. It redirects him. It gears him into a cleaner and jollier way of living and saves his self-respect. To the self-assertive, it says, come and assert yourself for Christ. To the egotist, it says, come and do your boasting in the Lord. To the thrill-seeker, it says, come and enjoy the thrill of the abundant Christian life. The idea behind this kind of thing may be sincere, but its sincerity does not save it from being false. It misses completely the whole meaning of the cross. The cross is a symbol of death. It stands for the abrupt, violent end of a person. God salvages the individual by liquidating him and then raising him in a new newness of life. The corn of wheat must fall into the ground and die. God then bestows life, but not an improved old life. Whoever would possess it must pass under the rod. He must repudiate himself and concur in God's just sentence against him. How can this theology be translated into life? Simply, the non-Christian must repent and believe. He must forsake his sins and then go on to forsake himself. Let him cover nothing, defend nothing, excuse nothing. Let him not seek to make terms with God, but let him bow his head before the stroke of God's stern displeasure and acknowledge himself worthy to die. Wow, I wish I could have said that. That is potent, but it's... All right, so I want, I want us to see essence of conversion. When someone having their need revealed, heart awakened to God, how do they become a follower of Christ, a Christian? Conversion defined. Conversion is the divinely enabled response of individuals to the gospel in which they turn from their sin and themselves, repent, and trust in Jesus as Savior and Lord. Believe. So let's, let's break this down. Divinely enabled. I hope, I hope you, you're picking up on a theme here tonight. Everything here is by grace. God does this. Even what we do, repent and believe, those are gifts from God. Look at this. Repentance is a gift. Old Testament prophets made this clear. We can't turn from sin by our own strength. Bring me back that I may be restored, Jeremiah 31. Lamentations. Restore us to yourself, O Lord, that we may be restored. You get to Acts 5. God gives repentance to Israel. God grants repentance that leads to life, Acts 11. God's kindness leads to repentance, Romans 2. God grants repentance, 2 Timothy 2. See the picture. Repentance is a gift. We repent, but that's 
still a gift granted by God. In the same way, faith is a gift. When they arrived and gathered the church together, declared all that God had done with them and how he had opened a door. God had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. By grace, you've been saved through faith, not your own doing. It's the gift of God. Paul talked about how the crucifixion of Christ was a stumbling block to Jews, folly to Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles alike saw the crucifixion of Christ as foolish. It was madness. And it's the same today. Imagine hearing today someone Someone announced, a man was executed by political authorities in a small Middle Eastern country. He was claiming to be the savior of the world. Such a man would not get a second thought from us. Jews, Gentiles, Americans alike. Imagine taking a successful businessman in our culture. Successful businessman, money, house, car, everything. Imagine taking a successful independent woman. Independent in our culture from everything including God. Imagine taking them out behind a garbage, de- garbage heap. And showing a man nailed to a bloody cross crying out that he is claiming to be the savior of the world. And you say to that businessman and this independent woman, this is your king. And you need to die to yourself and trust in him because he will judge you for all of eternity. That seems like madness. They would feel sorry for the man. What is the difference between those who, who see this as folly and those who see this as wisdom. The difference is grace and mercy. Faith is a gift. It's granted, Philippians 1, that you should believe on Him. Spurgeon said, faith wherever it exists is in every case without exception the gift of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. Never yet did a man believe in Jesus with the faith here intended except the Holy Spirit led him to do so. Faith in the living God and His Son Jesus Christ is always the result of the new birth and can never exist except in the regenerate. Divinely enabled, responsive individuals to the gospel. Now, what you, what you see in Acts is these two words mentioned, repent and believe, over and over again. So let's think about them both. What does it mean to repent? Turn from sin and themselves. This is what God does all throughout Scripture. Ezekiel, repent, turn from your transgressions. Matthew, Jesus' initial message, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. First Christian sermon, Acts 2, right after that, Acts 3, repent and turn. So what does it mean to repent? Follow with me. Repentance involves intellectual acknowledgement of sin. You realize your sin before God. You see sin as an abomination in the sight of God. After committing adultery with Bathsheba, David realized, against you I have sinned. I've done what is evil in your sight. But when you see intellectual acknowledgement of sin, realize that this alone is insufficient. Biblical repentance is not just merely intellectual. Repentance also involves emotional sorrow over sin. Paul talks about godly grief that produces repentance. Not the kind of grief like you feel bad that you've got caught doing something wrong. It's, it's the pain that you feel when you know you've hurt someone. And it's the deepest pain because you know you have rebelled against the infinitely beautiful and holy one. There's an emotional element there. It's why Isaiah cries out, woe is me. Why Job says, I despise myself, repent in dust and ashes. So there's sorrow over sin here, but that alone is insufficient. Not just intellectual. Biblical repentance, not just intellectual, not just emotional. Biblical repentance involves a personal decision to flee sin. Turn from wicked ways. God called his people to in the Old Testament. Return to me. Return to the Lord your God. New Testament. Jesus said, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. In other words, show your repentance by your deeds. 
Paul talks about how the Thessalonians were saved. He says you turned from idols to serve the living and true God. Now I want to be careful here. Because when we're talking about conversion, we're talking about the moment. That initial moment when someone repents of sin. And that's going to begin a process. We're going to talk about sanctification later where we're continually running from sin. But there comes a point. Born again, God awakens our heart. And what happens? This is our response divinely enabled response. We were going in a certain direction and we turn to a different direction. We realize I'm going in the wrong direction. I'm rebelling against God, not trusting in God. Intellectual, emotional, feel the weight of that, and then volitional, turn. You turn in a different direction. Turn where? Well, that leads to trust. Trust in Jesus. You believe You turn from sin and yourself and you trust in Jesus. Confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart, God raised from the dead. You will be saved. So what does it mean to believe, to have faith? A lot of confusion about this one. Similar to repentance, faith involves knowledge about Christ. So we'll start on the intellectual level. Obviously, in order to be saved, you have to have knowledge about who Christ is and what Christ has done talked about that. You've got to know that He lived the life you couldn't live. He died the death you couldn't die. He's risen from the grave. You've got to know that. You've got to hear that, Romans 10 says. You've got to hear the gospel that's summed up there in 1 Corinthians 15. But that alone is insufficient. Simply to have knowledge of Christ, to believe that Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave, that's insufficient. People, people say, well, I believe in Jesus. The reality is every intoxicated guy I've ever met on the street believes in Jesus. Big deal. Simple intellectual knowledge of what Christ, who Christ is, what Christ has done, not sufficient to save. Go a step deeper. Faith involves assent to Christ. I skipped over James 2, even the demons believe. Faith involves assent to Christ. So this is intellectual to an emotional level. Not just realizing that Jesus died on the cross, but realizing that this has personal relevance for your life. Now we're getting closer, but you, you skip down and put this alone as insufficient. You look at, at Nicodemus in John 3. He knew that Jesus was a teacher come from God, but he was clearly not born again. Acts chapter 26 gives us a picture of King Agrippa. He believed what the prophet said about Jesus, yet he was not willing to become a Christian. So take it deeper. Knowledge about Christ, assent to Christ. Biblical faith involves trust in Christ. The reason I'm using trust here instead of belief is because, especially in, in this culture, we think about belief And we almost think about it disconnected from personal commitment too. But biblical belief involves a trust, personal trust in Christ. Listen to how how Christ invites people to himself. Invites people to believe in him, John 1. To come to him, John 6. To drink from him, John 7. To find rest in him, Matthew chapter 11. Here, John Owen talk about this biblical picture of trust in Christ. He's imagining Christ speaking to us. He says, this is somewhat of the word which he now speaks unto you. Why will you die? Why will you perish? Hear it. Why will you not have compassion on your own souls? Can your hearts endure or can your hands be strong? In the day of wrath that is approaching, look unto me and be saved. Come unto me and I will ease you of all sins, sorrows, fears, burdens, and give rest to your souls. Come, I entreat you. Lay aside all procrastinations, all delays. Put me off no more. Eternity lies at the door. Do not so hate me as that you will rather perish than accept of deliverance by me. 
And Luther said, there's two ways of believing. One way is to believe about God, as I do when I believe that what, God, what is said of God is true. This faith is knowledge or observation rather than faith. The other way is to believe in God, as I do when I not only believe that what is said about Him is true, but put my trust in Him, surrender myself to Him, and make bold de- to deal with Him, believing that without doubt He will be to me and do to me just what is said of Him. So, so belief in Christ. We turn, sin in ourselves, trust in Jesus. Now, the reality is our faith is only so good as the object of our faith. You can have all the faith in the world. What matters is the object of your faith. I remember one time I was, uh, I was uh, preaching down in New Orleans on a Saturday during the day, and I had to be in North Mississippi that night. There was no way I could make it driving, and so the guy in North Mississippi said, well, I'll, I'll have somebody fly you up. And I thought, well, that's cool. Private jet. Well, got to the uh, little airfield and not so jet-like. Okay, this thing was, I think the Wright brothers were testing this thing out one day. And, and so I climb in this tiny little plane like that. I'm waiting for the guy to just kind of go out and start the propeller with his hands. And, and uh, we're, we're kind of wheeling around uh, to get on this little uh, dirt runway. And, uh, and as, we're, as we're getting ready to take off, he's kind of taxiing some and my door flies open. <laughs> and he looks at me and says, is that your door? I said, yeah. He said, oh, sorry, man. And so he gets out. He walks around, shuts my door, and he gets back in. And my prayer life is increasing at this moment. Just deep intimacy. I look at the guy. I said, just, just out of curiosity, like, what, what if that had happened, say, 20,000 feet later? Like, what would we have done then? And he's like, oh, no, don't worry, don't worry about it. We're going to be fine. So here's the deal. We get up in the air. We get up in the air. It doesn't matter how much faith I have in this plane. When the right wing falls off, we're going down regardless of how much faith I've got in it. Right? What matters is your ob- the object of your faith. You have faith, all the zealous faith in the world. What's your faith in? In Jesus as, follow this, Savior and Lord. Salvation is coming to Jesus as the Savior who died for us. And as the Lord who rules over us. Some people have said that you can accept Jesus as Savior without submitting to Him as Lord. Simply put, that is not true. You look in Acts, 92 times Jesus is called Lord. 92 different times. Twice He's called Savior. 92 times called Let all the house of Israel know for certain God has made both Jesus both Lord and Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus. Jesus is not a poor, puny Savior just begging for you to accept Him. He is the sovereign, reigning Lord who, who deserves all of your worship and all of your life. Savior and Lord. Now, conversion debated. Are faith and repentance both necessary for salvation? This has been a debate among Christians Wondering aloud if repentance and faith are both necessary for salvation. Hear the debate. Charles Riley, you're familiar with Riley's study Bible? The message of faith only and the message of faith plus commitment of life cannot both be the gospel. Therefore, one of them is a false gospel and comes under the curse of perverting the gospel or preaching another gospel. St. Hodges said faith is the inward conviction that what God says to us in the gospel is true. That and that alone is saving faith. Tozer begs to differ. We take him for what he is, the anointed Savior and Lord who is King of kings and Lord of lords. He would not be who he is if he saved us and called us and chose us without the understanding that he can also guide and control our lives. James Boyce said there is only one Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and anyone who believes in a Savior who is not the Lord is not believing the true Christ and is not regenerate. We call for commitment to Christ, the true Christ. 
So our faith, repentance, Savior, Jesus is Savior and Lord, all of that necessary. Look in Scripture. Sometimes Scripture only mentions faith. I put three instances there in Acts. Believe, believe, believe. Sometimes Scripture only mentions repentance. And you see examples of that. And then, sometimes Scripture mentions both faith and repentance. Conclusion, faith and repentance, biblically, are inseparable. You don't just see this in Acts. All over Scripture, Jesus says, repent and believe in the Gospel. Repent from dead works and faith toward God. Hebrews 6, John Murray said it's impossible to disentangle faith and repentance. Saving faith is permeated with repentance, and repentance is permeated with faith. Whenever you turn from something, you turn to something. Whenever you turn to something, you turn from something. They go together. It's not even that one happens before the other. They happen together in a, at a point of conversion. Look at it this way. I'll give you an illustration from the Old Testament that Jesus uses in John 3 in the New Testament. Look and live. In Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, he said, As Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What he's referencing there is a story in Numbers chapter 21. Read this story. From Mount Hor, the Israelites set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Eden and Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. The people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, we've sinned, for we've spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take the serpents away from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And everyone who is bitten, when he sees it, shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a pole. And if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. So you got the picture. People complaining about the food. When they do, snakes start appearing everywhere. People start dying from snake bites. Why? And why does Jesus use this story in his conversation with Nicodemus? It's a call, both in Numbers 21 to the Israelites and in John 3 to Nicodemus, to repent of your rebellion, to realize that you and I have a disease we cannot cure. We've sinned against God. We cannot do anything to overcome the venom of sin in our blood. We have a disease we can't cure. We have a destiny we can't change. Because of the sin in us, we are dying. All of us, every single one of us is dying in our sin. Headed to an eternal death with nothing we can do to change it. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you need to be born again. How? Nicodemus asked. How can I be born again? And Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up. What does that mean? Well, follow this. Recognize the extent of your rebellion and look to His love. When Jesus said the Son of Man must be lifted up, He uses that phrase two more times in the book of John. John 8, John 12, 32, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw people to myself. That is a phrase, that verse that is so often taken out of context. People say in the context of a worship service, if we just lift Jesus up, he'll draw people to himself. Not what Jesus is saying in John 12. In John 12, Jesus is referring to the cross. He's referring to the point where he will be lifted up on a cross. And everyone who looks to him on a cross, believes on him on the cross, will live. He was lifted up to suffer as Savior. That's what Jesus is pointing to. And then you see this word used later in the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 talks about how now he's lifted up to reign as Lord. And the beauty is surprising paradox. You think about it. Numbers 21. People are dying of snake bites. God says, take a bronze serpent and lift it up. Here's the deal. And I'm not a big fan of snakes anyway. But if, 
if everybody's dying of snake bites, then the last thing I really want to see is a what? A snake. And so what God does is he says, take that which is the symbol of death in this picture and raise it up. Surprising paradox leads us to the cross where the ultimate symbol of death and sin on the cross becomes the ultimate source of life for sinners. Look at the cross. Repent of your rebellion. Believe on him as Savior and Lord and you will live forever. What's interesting, and I got John 19 in there. You get to the end of the Gospel of John and you see Jesus' body being taken down, Joseph Arimathea. And what, who arrives back in the picture? Middle of that passage. He came and took his body away. Nicodemus also. Who earlier had come to Jesus by night came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Nicodemus, who would see Jesus lifted up and then care for his body when he was taken down. I've mentioned Charles Spurgeon a couple of times. I couldn't help but to put his conversion story in your notes here. Here's the deal. Before we read this, this, this is the text. John 3, picture of looking to Christ. This is the text that God used to draw, to awaken Spurgeon's heart and bring him to conversion. Spurgeon had been a religious man, trying hard to earn his way to God. But on one snowy Sunday morning, he wandered into a church where a guy was preaching who had hardly ever preached before. This was his story. I sometimes think I might have been in darkness and despair until now, had it not been for the goodness of God in sending a snowstorm one Sunday morning while I was going to a certain place for worship. When I could go no further, I turned down a side street and came to a little primitive Methodist chapel. In that chapel, there may have been a dozen or 15 people. I had heard of the primitive Methodists, how they sang so loudly that they made people's heads ache. But that did not matter to me. I wanted to know how I might be saved. And if they could tell me that, I did not care how much they made my head ache. The minister did not come that morning. He was snowed up, I suppose. At last, a very thin-looking man, a shoemaker, a tailor or something of that sort, went up in the pulpit to preach. Now, it is well that preachers should be instructed, but this man was really stupid. (laughs) He was obliged to stick to his text for the simple reason that he had little else to say. The text was, look unto me and be saved. You saved all the ends of the earth. He did not even pronounce the words rightly, but that did not matter. There was I, I thought, a glim- there was, I thought, a glimpse of hope for me in that text. The preacher began thus, my dear friends, this is a very simple text indeed. It says, look. Now look and don't take a deal of pains. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand a year to be able to look. And anyone can look. Even a child can look. But then the text says, look unto me. I, said he, in broad Essex. I'm like, I can do the accent. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> many of you are looking to yourselves, but there's no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Some look to God the Father. No, look to Him by and by, Jesus Christ says. Look unto me. Some of you say, we must wait for the Spirit's working. You have no business with that just now. Look to Christ. The text says, look unto me. Then the good man followed up his text in this way. Look unto me, and I am sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I am hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I am dead and buried. Look unto me, I arise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I am sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. When he had gone to about that length, and had managed to spin out 10 minutes or so. He was at the end of his tether. Then he looked at me under the gallery, and I dare say with so few present, he knew me to be a stranger, just fixing his eyes on me as if he knew all my heart. He said, young man, you look very miserable. 
Well, I did, but I had not been accustomed to have remarks made from the pulpit on my personal appearance before. (laughs) However, it was a good blow, struck right home. He continued, and you will always be miserable, miserable in life and miserable in death if you don't obey my text. But if you obey now, this moment, you will be saved. Then lifting up his hands, he shouted as only a primitive Methodist could do. Young man, look to Jesus Christ. Look, look, look. You have nothing to do but to look and live. I saw at once the way of salvation. I know not what else he said. I did not take much notice of it. I was so possessed with that one thought. Like as when the brazen serpent was lifted up, the people only looked and were healed. So it was with me. I had been waiting to do 50 things. When I heard that word, look, what a charming word it seemed to me. Oh, I looked until I could almost have looked my eyes away. There and then the cloud was gone. The darkness had rolled away. And that moment I saw the sun. And I could have risen that instant and sung with the most enthusiastic of them of the precious blood of Christ and the simple faith which looks alone to Him. Oh, that somebody had told me this before. Trust Christ and you shall be saved. Yet it was no doubt all wisely ordered. And now I can say, ere since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. to every person within the sound of my voice. His boundless love and eternal life are available to everyone who believes. And don't don't, don't move. Just, Just wait a second. We're only only halfway through. I pray that there are people in this room and I pray that there are people in homes, different church buildings who who cannot say that you've been born again. And yet God, in the last couple of hours, has shown you your need and awakened your heart and is calling you to repent and believe. So, with this gospel, I want to to call you to repent and believe. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.